the Tea Head Popcast, episode number two. I'm Marty. I'm Moby. And I'm Leland. Um, I can't believe we're already on episode number two, guys. We're Crazy. Here. We made it. It's almost like we're sitting here just banging them out one back to back to back. Sweating in the hot Vancouver sun. Yes. It's a beautiful day for a podcast, guys. <laughs> uh, this episode, we're going to be tackling a few different things. Um, one of the items is going to be a, a kind of a movie review discussion about uh, the new Spider-Man film, Spider-Man Homecoming. Spoilers! Uh, it's definitely spoilers. Always. So many spoilers. Uh, Leland, um, it's just some rough uh, kind of discussion on it before we dive into the, the Oh, topic. rough. Yeah, okay. Um, like what we're going to be talking about? What are we going to be talking about? Well, I mean, I... I, I Interested in hearing you guys, uh, your comparisons of just the role of Peter Parker between Holland and Maguire and um, Garfield. Yeah, got uh, I got definitely got have some. To say that. Yeah, I got some thoughts on that too. Okay. And, uh, yeah, in my case, uh, I think a lot of my thoughts are actually going to be contained to the film itself. Um, you know, I just I have a lot of opinions on this particular iteration of Spider-Man, and that isn't to be uh, ominous in thinking that you know <laughs> right. I hated it. I, I quite enjoyed it, but I, I have some thoughts about it. I have. I will confess, I have not seen the Amazing Spider-Man one or two, so I cannot comment on those. Okay. Except that Jamie Fox looked ridiculous, and I feel like I dodged a bullet. <laughs> okay, but, well, uh, we'll get to that. We definitely will. Uh, all right, and then also for uh, Crazy for Cardboard, Leland, uh, what are we going to be discussing today? What are we going to be discussing today? Well, I, um, being the guy who usually teaches games, I just was. Um, I was interested in hearing you guys' thoughts about the way you learn games and kind of what aids you or what uh, inhibits you from grokking a game. And, and maybe just to give to our listener who might be in the same situation, uh, maybe some tips on how to do's and don'ts, maybe some rough do's and don'ts of, of teaching a game. It's an excellent topic. It's one I think Leland should have brought up a year and a half ago when he first started <laughs> collecting more games and trying to teach us. But uh, as the cliche goes, better late than never. Uh, in the video game segment, uh, this is a segment that's very close to my heart, the variety show. Uh, we're going to discuss retro gaming a little bit, and we've got uh, a number of topics on that. I'm quite interested in bringing up, so... Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I think retro gaming is huge right now uh, with the SNES Classic around the corner. The first one where I'm like salivating over getting and getting my hands on, which sounds impossible at this point. Yeah, right. I'm excited to talk about it and really excited to just dive into retro gaming in general. Well, let's do it. Yeah, okay. Let's do it. Uh, So, first segment is going to be a a video game variety show. Uh, Still our working title because (laughs) I haven't had time to think about anything else. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the, the topic today is just... A retro gaming discussion, it's going to be a kind of a general discussion. It's a, a big picture discussion on retro gaming. The recent popularity, um, we really want to look at stuff like the SNES Classic, the NES Classic from last year, the immense popularity. Why is it popular? Moby, what do you think? You know, I think, honestly, nostalgia is a big seller. Um, and, I mean, that sounds cliche. Nostalgia is the seller. The seller. Well, what have you got? You've got a bunch of people now in their, you know, 40s especially, their, yeah. their 30s, that grew up with the Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, those systems did not exactly last long in Mother's Human Basement. And, uh, you know, we all know about endlessly blowing on the cartridges for sure. 20 minutes to try to make them to work. does not actually work. It doesn't work. But it damages them. It does. Don't spit in your games. Okay, I promise, Leland, <laughs> you'll never do it again, Leland. Do not spit in the SNES Classic. <clears throat> but 
you know, so here's the thing. So all of a sudden, Nintendo out of the blue drops this system, which looks like a NES, but it's preloaded. And honestly, I think we can all agree the library was excellent for that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd get it. I'd want it. I'd play them. 100%. And it's... I might only play them for a day or two, but I'd play them. Exactly. But for the price point, it was amazing. And But the, the big issue was yeah. getting it. Oh, yeah. I don't uh, understand that decision. I, I do not. I don't understand it. And, and this is a marketing thing. And I really don't understand why Nintendo did that. I honestly think it's not Nintendo-like. You know, if you look at Operation Rainfall, which was a write-in-email-in campaign to get Xenoblade Chronicles Last Story in Pandora's Tower released, you know, Nintendo was receptive to that. So they knew they had this demand, and what did they do? They throttled the amount of systems that they put on the market. And it's ridiculous. I want a NES Classic. I can't get one because I look on eBay and these things are 500 bucks. Yeah, it's nuts. And I, you know what? It, it sucks. And I don't know why they limited that. Yeah, the the demand is clearly there. Yes. It, clearly it, there. it feels like Nintendo is not fulfilling the customer's desires right now. Yeah. And, and it, I can look to the NES Classic, the SNES Classic, which might be going down the same road, even with yeah. the oh, to production. Um, yeah. If you look at, like, Walmart recently having uh, consoles available for pre-order, then they don't. Um, it's every time I look for pre-orders in Canada, at least, can't find can't any. Can't find anything. Uh, and I've looked. I look probably every couple days because I want one. I want one for Moby as well. We have a kind of like a gentleman's a agreement. gentleman's agreement. We're both going to help each other get this console. Oh, really? Yes, we yeah. do. So the, the chance you can get, you're going to get two if, if you have the chance. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's good. If I can get smart. it, I'm buying two. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's smart. And, you know, I think that's disappointing. And then I also think about their virtual console. The, the Switch just came out, and there is no virtual console in sight. What is this virtual console? Okay, the virtual console is basically, it's an app that's been on every Nintendo console since the Wii. Okay. The Wii was the first one. Yeah. And you can download old games pretty much from N64 previous. Okay, so basically it's a backwards compatible app. Yeah, but here's the problem that annoys me, is it's not backwards compatible throughout the systems. Meaning, you have to rebuy for the new system oh, the old game. So I if think. You own There's it, no data transfer. No, if you own it on the Wii, yeah. you have to rebuy it for the Wii U. Now, oh, I cheated that with my Wii U. I cheated that because my Wii's disk drive died, and I figured out there was a way by using an SD card and having an internet connection with both systems on at the same time, I could create an imprint of my Wii, a digital imprint on my Wii U. So that's how I got the games over, but I have a problem now, which is that uh, the classic controller, which is required to play a lot of those Wii games, I, does not connect to the Wii U. Right, I so I had to buy an adapter from China that's going to take 90 days to get here. I, Who knows if it works? Who knows if it The very arrived. fact that you have to do this is wrong. Is wrong. It, it's, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's silly. Okay, and, okay, though. I think that's strong. That's strongly worded. Because you look at, like, the PS3, that the PS3 later iterations was not backwards compatible at all. So I think you're lucky you get the option for Okay. That. I had a library of over 200 games for PS2, and I buy a PS3 that uh, I can't play I agree, those on anymore. but you can still rebuy those games on PS3. Not all of them. Cody, of them. I think you're giving Sony too much credit. I think you should be fucking pissed off at Sony. Yeah, I, I am. That's why okay. That's why this is a positive for the Nintendo system where you can even do that. That's the I positive. Okay. And I, I, yes, and I, I get that. Yeah, the move to ne the next generation 
That's a that's a tough break. That's a hard hit. You you can no longer enjoy these games that you've already purchased and have probably potentially purchased the second time. Like this is the third time you purchased. Yeah, you already bought it when you were younger. Yeah, you bought the yeah. nostalgia version, yeah. and now you need it again. But you know what? With those types of games, they know the audience that they're catering to. They're catering to those people in their forties who played those games when they were kids and who have, ideally. The, the funds oh, yeah. To, yeah. To, to pay for it. And, they're, so still, they and they're still expensive. Their yeah. price points are pretty much on par with other new arcade games. Really? Uh, you know, you're looking at probably wow. 15 bucks for 15 a, bucks for an N64, N64 game. Whoa. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. But, yeah, man. When you yeah, got to reload your whole collection. I look at the Switch and I look at a console that you can play handheld. You can take on a plane with you, which I did, and it was phenomenally fun to play That's Zelda cool. on a plane. That's cool. <laughs> But how fun would it be to download Mario 64 and play it anywhere? I, I realize you can play a handheld version of it already on a Game Boy, but to do that... Well, there's a whole nother... That's a whole nother console. Exactly. I mean, even though it's handheld, that's a console. You know, you could play it... A device. But to be able to download a whole history worth of games, I think that's what everyone was really excited for with the Switch, and we haven't got that yet. And with a console that has a very limited kind of game... Uh, Depth right now. The library is limited. It will yeah. be for a while until third parties jump on. The retro gaming is something everybody's really hankering for, and the SNES Classic's great, but if we can't get it, we sure yeah. as heck want to get it, get those games on the uh, Switch. Yeah. So, do you think that is all some plays into this, this, the ploy? This, they make the demand for retro, accessible retro gaming to boost sales on these Classic consoles, these the SNES classic. I think it's they're right? defi- they're definitely related. I you think I think waiting to release that virtual console, it's not going to happen until after the SNES classic has run its limited course. Yeah. But you know, it's funny though if that is the case that they're shooting themselves in the foot with the limited runs of those classic consoles. It makes no sense to me. Boggles my mind how they could not be make selling another three million copies of these things. No problem. It does. It does. And Nintendo has made some very questionable decisions, you know, in their history. And that that could be two podcasts worth of stuff. You look at the Wii U generation, which they didn't support in first-party games much at all. And then the, the system crapped out, and they wondered why people weren't buying it. And it's like, geez, Nintendo, you know, this is the, the most... Wii? The Wii? The Wii U. Wii U. Oh, but it just came out. Didn't uh, it? No, Lilo. Wait, what are we in? Oh, Wii U is Wii U, then Switch. Yes. Okay. So you're yeah. talking about a, a, <laughs> a, a wow, okay. a completed generation. Time does fly. Case in point, yeah, right you, there. You forgot it even wow. Yeah. You thought it went Wii Switch. <laughs> I did have that lineage in my in my brain. Yeah, that's that's wow. wow. Okay, case in point, man. Whew. Yeah. Argument it's, closed. It's bad. Segment it's over. Bad. Nintendo um, sucks. Ooh. Don't back Nintendo. Ooh, I've been saying it for years. Boy, yeah. I've been saying it for the years. The Wii U is a sore point. I'll admit that a very sore. Yeah, point Yeah, I guess you know one blip and one blip in a record can't just tear down an entire company. That's very blatant of me to say Nintendo sucks, but I'll stand behind it because I said. You know what, Marty? Marty, where do you think the appeal for retro gaming in general comes from, though? Oh, it's just nostalgia. I mean, it's it's, there's so many good. Yeah, I just games said that 15 minutes ago. Thanks, Marty. Um, oh. But but a lot of the. Re- <laughs> 
the retro, I was asking the games yeah. that we're talking about were genre definers, and they they started these genres that we loved, like the original Final Fantasies and uh, Mario's, and they were so good. They're some of the best games ever made, yeah. um, universally agreed upon, and especially the SNES classic. I'm looking at the library, and I just can't I can't wait to play a whole bunch of these. Like Super Mario RPG is so fun. Just mm. uh, Super Mario, yeah, a link to the past. Like I've, I've played these games many times, but they're all great games, and they all stand the test of time. You know, I think there's something to be said for in-person multiplayer, which I think has really dropped off the map, um, which, you know, certainly N64 had, you know, as a major selling component, having those four controller slots and doing split screen. And I think because of the hardware limitations, those games had to be pretty simple, like pick up and play and learn within a couple minutes. And I, I mean, certainly with the complicated AAA open world games we have now, I think we've lost that. We definitely have. It's something I think we can regain with the Switch. Mm. Um, there's that possibility if your friend has a Switch and you have a Switch, it's very easy to bring it over. It's very easy to connect your controller. There's a lot of options there. It's just a matter of will they make the games for it. Mm-hmm. Do you know, do you have any appeal, either of you? Does retro gaming have any appeal for you over contemporary games that contemporary games simply cannot match? And, I mean, we just discussed one and simplicity, but is there anything else that you can think of? I'm big on new games. I love um, AAA, huge games. The Witcher 3 is probably my favorite game ever. Oh, I'm currently playing Persona 5. It's doesn't feel next-gen-ish, but it's still a really huge, fun game. Obviously, it took a ton of development time. But I can definitely swing back into these old games. It doesn't feel like you lo- they lose a step. They're just different to me. But one does not need to exist without the other. I love them both. Yeah, I think um, they can e- they can easily coexist. I mean, again, because the back to the simplicity, you can easily boot one of them up and play it for half an hour. As opposed to The Witcher 3. I mean, I don't think we touched on this last episode, but you can't just pop into Witcher 3 for half an hour. You can't get anything no, done. No, it's not the can't. type of game that they've, they've created, and that's not... The type of experience they've tried to craft for their their audience, for the players that are, that are going to play, no, pick up their, their not game. at all. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who love Skyrim, and then they pick up The Witcher, thinking it's Skyrim. Yeah, and then they regret it because <laughs> the systems and the gameplay and the world is so, so different, much to take wow. in, and very different. You know, to turn on the a, Witcher three interfaces, like you don't know if you don't know what you're doing. When I first started the game, I'm like. What is all this stuff? Like all the crafting screens and stuff. Like it's a lot to take in. I, I turned it back on for the expansions. Yeah, and it hurt my brain. You had to relearn it. <laughs> yeah, I had to yeah. relearn. But you know, I like uh, once it's there, it's intuitive, right? I mean, like it's like any any great rule set for a board game. It, it can be complex. It can be intricate. But once you've once you've been exposed to it, it's self-explanatory. Maybe not the best implementation of those mechanics is not always apparent, obviously, right? That's finding the strategy in a, in a game, in a video game, in a board game. But but a good interface and a good rule set can... It becomes second nature to you. I suppose thinking about uh, retro gaming, some of these nostalgic games we're talking about, they are simplicity itself. It, yeah. You talk about um, A Link to the Past. It's not a complicated game, but the rules are there. The gameplay has rules and it has systems and they make sense. And there is a... a depth to it like a complex complexity that takes time to unravel but it's simple at first and 
maybe it's different now. Maybe it's complex to start and things have to be almost sometimes convoluted and there's a lot going on in games and a game needs to have multiplayer and needs to be uh, open world and needs to have DLC. But it was nice when games just were games. You turned on, you bought Zelda, it was done. Mm-hmm. There, was, there didn't need to be a multiplayer. You just had a single player, 20 to 30 hour experience that stuck with you. And that's something that maybe is lost now that retro gaming is uh, kind of, well, gaming has moved to the future. Well, I think, you know, it's similar that in, in movies sometimes, you know, especially horror movies, they say, you know, a good director can make you scared of what you can't see because your mind fills in the blanks. Yeah. Certainly, I can think of some retro games that have poor graphics where my mind kind of has to fill in some of the blanks of what's happening. Um, you know, I think to a PC game that I played consistently through my life when I first laid my hands on it and I think 1999, which is uh, Star Wars Rebellion. Not a very well-known game, but in my opinion, one of the best Star Wars uh, big world, galaxy-wide kind of 4X um, uh, strategy games, but it has absolutely terrible graphics that are virtually 2D. And you know, my mind has to fill in what's happening. You know, when you send your character on a mission, it's just a little rectangle with like Han Solo's face on it. And you pair him up with like maybe a Luke Skywalker face and send him to a planet. It sounds completely boring when you say it, but the mechanics are sound and uh, the sound itself is actually one of the good parts of the game. But you kind of fill in, (laughs) you kind of fill in what's missing there. I'll throw out another quick example, Turok the Dinosaur Hunter uh, for N64. Very popular game, but an unintended challenge is the terrible draw distance. That fog, if you've ever seen screenshots, (laughs) is right in your face. And it's disorientating. It makes the game more challenging than it would be. To some people, it's a major turnoff they can't get over. Mm. But to me, it's an interesting challenge that you would never see in a new game. Because I can't say I've ever thought so, of terrible graphics as an interesting yeah, challenge. Right? <laughs> so your challenge is playing as a blind person? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> that is such a cynical way of seeing it. <laughs> I think our listener can You're understand. You're so good at games that you need to have a handicap against you. Yeah, wow. Well, you guys know I play an extra easy double oh, beginner. Yeah, so. Whenever I that, that, <laughs> there's going to be a discussion about that. Uh, yeah, right. you will be put on trial. <laughs> Segway, I think. As we'll was, roll. Uh, yeah, does, I, does anybody else have any final thoughts on retro gaming before we move on? No. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Marty. No, uh, no, no. Go just jump over me. Just do whatever. Yeah, hey, that's what I try to do. Right? Yeah. Just, just jump on me, like Mario. I'm oh, tapped, like Mario. Hey, so you, you two figured right. it. I'm tapped. Um, you know. I think that's kind of summing up how we all feel about it. Like we said, Leland doesn't have as much experience with games from those. No, no, my uh, my video game experience started with uh, PS One. Yeah. So anything prior to that, very very limited. But you could argue that retro gaming kind of includes that. I'd say it includes that generation at this point. Yeah. See, that's that's what I was going to bring up is like the remakes. To me, retro gaming is like I mean, I could call back to. Sixth generation of consoles is being retro. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, I, fair I could enough. easily make that argument for myself. All the HD remakes that have come out. Oh yeah, those things make money, man. Like, how many times have they redone Shadow of the Colossus? Oh yeah. Holy hell, they must make a killing off of that game. Yeah. Phenomenal game. Great, t- even when it came out, and and I bought the HD remake for PS3, and I have I didn't pick it up for PS4. Which I think there's an iteration. It's that coming out. out I think. It's coming out. I don't think a it's collection. A collection. Like I for PS3, I got the 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 Ico Eco whatever the hell you yeah. said, and Shadow Colossus collection. I played both of them. 
Shadow Colossus was just as beautiful as it was when it first came out. Still impactful. Yes, um, they're, great they're f- I believe they're fully remaking it. Shadow oh, that's Colossus. cool. It's going to be the same game, but I Oh, yes. I, yeah, I saw that. But that it's, was, like, um, it's, not an, it's not a remaster. It's a remake. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I saw I saw a video on that. Yeah, I think uh, they're going to go try to give it like 60 frames per second yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing. That's I, cool. I, I think so. I'll probably touch, touch it again. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I'm tapped out on it now at this point, but I've just played that game so much. But, I mean, that's, you know... They, those Colossus are second nature, but man, if, could they do extra Colossi as DLC? Would that be cool or no? I think that... Depending on price point. Doesn't that kind of harm its legacy? It does change the narrative of the entire Apparently, game. Apparently, there was a lot on the cutting room floor. And really? they had like 30 or 40, yeah. and they said, you know what, this is too much, it's too samey, as you like to say. 30 or 40. And it was just too much. Okay, well then that, that means that they were poorly designed. If the gameplay fighting each of those 20 extra ones were samey, then they were poorly designed, then they should I think you have a point. I think that's what made it nice was that they were all kind of different. Yeah, that's cool. It's it's a uh, they're basically they boil down to being a living puzzle that you interact with. Yeah, it's cool. That's entirely what. And then are. you get to the t- you solve that puzzle by stabbing it in the head a couple times. But a big bada boom, you're there. I think that would be interesting DLC. And again, depending on price point, I could be persuaded. It could to be. Pick up, I think so. if you're gonna do it, you should just include it in the package. You know, you're gonna re-release this game. Yeah. Release it with some extra stuff. Well, you, but you know the re-release is going to be full retail price. Oh, yeah. You're going to be playing $69.99 for the Bioshock collection. It's 79 bucks. Yeah, but you get three games. That's true. And I would not mind picking that up. But would, Ooh, oh, but, my God. We, oh, that was. But are you going to argue that, that? Like, I don't know if that would cost you retro gaming. I know. Yeah, you, yeah. totally, totally. Again, that's like. I, I can I can include that, but really I that's stretching it. You yeah. know, I can admit that. To me, yeah, to me, retro gaming is the N sixty four and older and back. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That, I like agree with three that. generations. Ago. Yeah, that was my rule. You got to bring definition. up three three generations back. I think is an excellent rule. Because what that amounts to like twenty twenty five years, right? Ago. Well, about, about twenty. About yeah, twenty. Say 20. Started, so that's what. What's the what's the. Uh, um, the age uh, before they decide something is classic, like music, Oof. like classic rock. That's like 20, 30 years, right? For its classic. That's say interesting. Isn't it 20 be, years? Got to be about 20 or 30. Yeah, something like that. Because something somewhere in that range. Like, you'd probably argue that a lot of like 20, like music from the 80s now is like considered It's class. Classics. Yes, it is. It falls under the classic. They wouldn't, Even they some would, early 90s stuff. They wouldn't be called classic. classic Bittersweet rock. Symphony. Classic. Bittersweet but they're not really, called, they're not in the genre of classic rock. No, but no. they are too. classics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but that, and I know this is a tangent of what are we talking <laughs> about music for, but like that is, they determine, they use that to determine who gets into the hall, music hall of fame. Right? They only put in classic uh, stuff in the Hall of Fame, do they not? You have to be, I think it's 25 years since Yeah, yeah, yeah. Release. So, uh, yeah, okay, that's what, I, that's, that's what I was thinking of. I think. So I think 20 years for gaming makes sense. Gaming's a newer thing than music, uh, Yeah, that, yeah so. 20 years. Yeah. Because 20 years in technological advancements is a lot. Oh, it's enormous. Yeah. I mean, the... Maybe not so much. Not Maybe not taking from this point and in 2037, maybe not so much. But from this point, 20 years back, huge. I think from this point, 2037 will be huge. I guess, because you're moving into VR and everything's going to be 3D, VR, all these things. That's true. And they're things that we, you know, thought of as kind of gimmicky, but they're stepping into a realm where they're a 
distinct possibility of everyone having eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, uh, yeah. I mean, they're out of my price point right now. I don't, sure, I don't no. want to drop you that much get... money on to play Resident Evil 7 in virtual reality. Yeah, you can't drop 500 bucks on a fucking Oculus Rift. No. And then try to get a machine that can run it. That's the other thing. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of wraps up uh, the retro gaming. Yeah, that was a great yeah. discussion. I like that. All right. So, uh, moving on, um, I thought the next one we should uh, dive into would be uh, the Crazy for Cardboard. Yeah, segment. I like that. Okay. Okay. So, listener, welcome to Crazy for Cardboard. Um, okay, like I t- like we touched on at the beginning, I just wanted to see um, do's and don'ts for, for teaching. And so I, I kind of frame this to be like, obviously your opinions is going to be a direct criticism upon myself, which, which I wanted. I, I wanted. I want to be adequate at teaching. I want to be, I want to be more than adequate at teaching. I want to be able to express a game's mechanics and maybe touch on strategies, which is something we'll discuss. But I want to be good at it because I want it to be accessible and easily accessible to the people I play with. And because that's how, that's how you grow this hobby. And I think this hobby is worth growing. I want to know you as Professor Leland. <laughs> okay, Professor Leland, I like it. I can put on my glasses that I don't really wear when I should be. Um, <laughs> okay, so I think uh, one one real easy first question for you guys is: Are you guys visual or auditory learners? Like, when I give you an example, is it more beneficial to see? me physically enacting that example, which in the board game t- context would be, you know, moving components around, playing cars, et cetera, et cetera, seeing the fallout of those. Or is it is it enough to show you those components, like to have your potentially player board in front of you and to be able to, to look down and, and not necessarily see it acted out, but explained proficiently and is that adequate? What do you guys think? Moby, I'll start with you. You know, I actually am more of an auditory learner when it comes to board games. Um, I can just kind of sit there and uh, absorb what you're saying. It's only when it comes to kind of abstract rules. You know, one of them that comes up was Scythe's board for uh, upgrades where certain squares are being blocked off with colored blocks because you've researched that, which then limits the amount of resources you need. But, oh, everybody's... A text uh, screen or board or whatever you want to call it is different for all the different factions. That I kind of had to see visually because that was literally a visual thing. And I had to learn that this is what happens there. Yes, that's very difficult to describe to somebody without context. But, you know, I I think of other games that, that, you know, we played like, uh, was it Red... Rescue from Atlantis, Escape from Atlantis. Escape, Survive, Escape from Atlantis. You know yeah. that was easy enough to. Yeah, well, that's a that's a light game, my friend. That's okay, like, but that's nowhere near the level of some of the social of, games, like of, uh, of, of you know, Fiasco. Which a little uh, hint at some point we're going to do a live Fiasco game. Definitely. But uh, that was easy well, enough to be taught. I, yeah. Okay. Uh, and again, that that is it's it's that is very unique. Okay. As far as board gaming go. But I get what you're saying. What I'm getting at is abstract well, see, concepts. Okay, are, are difficult to, to and grasp. And anything else is auditory okay, okay. as far as I'm concerned. Marty? I definitely feel like I'm a visual learner when it comes to the board gaming uh, world. Um, 100% of the time when we're doing uh, anything that's remotely complicated, if I see it played out, if I see a round played out, I almost immediately grasp it. Yeah. Um, I love doing a rough playthrough. It's tough on a long game. 
Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the tough one. But I yeah. like doing almost like a guided, like, you yeah, know, a little fun, first round, and then you reset and you go back. Yeah. And that, that always helps me because I find that the toughest part I have is learning the, uh, not so much the rules, but the stratagem. So yeah. I, I learn the rules quick enough, but I don't really understand why. Why you're doing mm-hmm. And that's yeah. something you pick up from seeing it being played. That's true. And uh, I definitely learn better that way. Okay, so that's a that's a good segue into my next question. Is um, just how much of the stratagem, as you say, would you like explained? Like, I mean, I know you guys can attest when we play games, especially new ones. I am very liberal about. Uh, pointing out uh, optimal moves and maybe to a detriment I'm just usually concerned that uh, a, an, an inferior move like something that's blatantly like yeah. you should not be doing that it comes from uh, a lack of knowledge uh, yeah. uh, if I've faltered on teaching a rule properly right. that's always my biggest fear so I'm always trying to be very helpful and I don't know if it comes off as being overbearing or you're just like Leland shut the fuck up and let me no I, I definitely see that when we're playing I think it helps you know I, I noticed that during Shogun it's like hey you know don't put that many guys there because this could happen and it's something I didn't think about mm-hmm. because I had only played it for 20 minutes totally so that's definitely a, a big part of it I think um, it's definitely big in the complicated games yeah yeah I mean I think what you basically are with board games is a, a living moderator that in the video game world is like the tutorial like hey maybe you don't want to move all those units into Germany on turn one or something like that you're the kind of guy and honestly not everyone's like that so this is one of the rare rare cases listener where I'll give Leland a compliment and say that he is better than me and that he will in that he will you know to his detriment in these games point out optimal moves and not everyone can have the humility to to do that I like Marty does I find it useful okay um what is interesting is the games where you've left me alone and the interesting sometimes game breaking strategies that come up you know what I'm gonna say <laughs> yes, I know you're gonna talk about example, viticulture viticulture <laughs> that we played one time we, listener but we played one time but the issue is is that I won by essentially showing how the mechanics of the game were broken it's a game about Uh, creating and stocking wine however I found that the quickest easiest way to beat the game beat Leland was to uh, basically do all these peripheral things such as uh, improve the winery uh, definitely improve tourism but there was no wine there you have all these cellars that's supposed to be filled with wine. I did not make a single bottle of wine, and I won the game. Now, not every game is like that. I don't know how he did that, listener. I do not know how he did that. I don't know what I screwed up, but I, I had to have screwed something up. We will revisit that game, maybe playing with more than just two players. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. One playthrough, I can't comment. But I'd be interest, interested to see that. I'm sure I'd fuck something up. <laughs> but maybe not. Hey, but maybe not. Maybe you are... And... That, but that may not necessarily be your brokenness. That could very well have play, uh, be a case of my inability to respond properly to it. Okay. Maybe. You know, another problem I see with board games is, you know, as we've discussed in the previous episode, as they get more complicated with the mechanics, it gets harder for you as the guy that's bought the game and trying to teach it to teach it without actually doing it. Now, a famous example for us is Twilight Struggle. We love that game, but oh my God. Goodness, the first time we played it together, did we screw up so many rules. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the rules overhead, it's it's 
the rules aren't complicated. It's the interaction just with the the base mechanic of card play that is in. in yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure many. I'm sure listener, you you may be well familiar with Twilight Struggle, but one player plays the USSR, one player plays the United States of America during the Cold War, vying for influence. Over a series of rounds, you are playing cards from your hand that depict events that ha- happened throughout the Cold War that can uh, plus or minus influence in certain countries that. And you swing it all into victory points. And a lot of the cards, they, I mean, they're 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 nice. And they, when you play them, but a lot of them leave a, a, a certain ambiguity mm. on the fulfillment of that action. And and I mean, I know you're probably heading into the 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 online version. Yeah, that solves those problems because. The game runs; it runs the game for you, exactly, and it doesn't let you play those cards incorrectly, because because it's it's an AI; it's 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 showing you what you do and what you can't do within its parameters of of this of the video game coding. So. Sure, but like to my original point, when you asked me, am I more an auditory or visual learner? You're right. The online version of Twilight Struggle, which I play every week. Um, it will not allow me to perform bad moves, but unfortunately, it's not a good tutorial. And there are, yeah. there are mechanics yeah. in that, in particularly coup, um, not just when, when, in, when you cannot coup, but how the mechanic of the coup actually works, and especially yeah. realignment rules in that game. Yes. I have no clue what I'm that. doing with realignment. No, totally, totally, because because the game's interface it assumes that you already know what is happening and it skips forward over these visual steps yes. that you would be taking with the physical copy. Yes. Yeah, I, I get, I get, yeah. I, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, one last thing, I think um, I wanted to see if sometimes when I'm teaching games that I take for granted the amount of knowledge that I have, and by knowledge I mean I got a hundred plus games that I could probably pretty easily rattle off the majority of the rule sets for spinning around in my brain. Do I take for granted uh, the impact that that knowledge plays on being able to learn a new game? Because inevitably there's overlapping mechanics that I see something written down on in a rule book and I'm like, oh, I've seen this before. I know exactly how that works. Do I sometimes take that for granted in my explanations? of the operation of some some mechanics. Like, do I, I don't fully flesh them out like I should. I think that's just typical of anyone who's experienced in anything. Yeah. It's, um, it's something that comes up whenever I try to teach my wife a video game. Because for us, it's like we know that the right trigger is going to be shoot in a totally. first person yeah, yeah, shooter. Yeah, right. And, you know, the right stick's going to move, the left stick's, or the right stick's going to look, left stick's going to move. Like, you yeah. know that about, or and you know that WASD is going to move you on a keyboard. Yeah, yeah. Because you played games. But someone who's not as knowledgeable about games might not automatically jump to those buttons. Hmm. And I feel it's the same way with a, a board game. You might know that, like, obviously this is how, you know, we score points or this is in this type of game. Yeah. But uh, I don't think that you're right. I don't think that everyone who doesn't play those games often realizes because I, I definitely don't. Yeah. Yeah, from my point of view, you never, you personally, I don't think you miss the basic rules. What happens is you completely by accident, I think, miss some of the more subtle rules. Oh, yeah. Subtle mechanics. Definitely. And definitely. that's why I think there's benefits, as Marty said, of actually playing these games because then you go, oh, yeah, I should have told you. Oh, yeah, I should have told you. Yeah, well, that's the worst thing. I 
desperately try to avoid that bullshit. Halfway through a game, like, oh, sorry, you can't do that because I forgot to tell you. <laughs> that is the worst. The yeah, worst. We had that happen during Shogun. Yeah. Well, something happened. and it was, Really? Yeah, it was like, oh, we'd already done that, so we're like, okay, we'll just do it for the rest of the game. I remember. What was it? It was something to do with uh, rice or something. I you know, um, I know the one thing that we played wrong, I think with both of you, is... Uh, the removal of revolt tokens right. from the that board. Was, I think that was part of it. Yeah, and uh, lifeboats too. We played lifeboats, and we ended up playing an extra round just because it was. Oh like, yeah, but like, that that was, and I knew that we were playing an extra round, but that was me. Again, I got into the situation where it was beneficial in the game points wise for me to say no. This is how the rule is when I w- when it, and I don't think it was I explained it poorly. Um, I was kind of just going off the graphic design of the board and the way it looked and, and assumed it was obvious right. to me. The amount of steps it takes to get the boat to the shores to save your guys. So when the the other person we were playing with, when she, it was not beneficial for her for us to have to move for not to not have to move that boat an extra round, right? So yeah, um, that was a, that was. Poor. That was bad. That no, could, it was just an oversight. Sure, and it wasn't game breaking. No, um, it, was, it didn't really make the game go that much longer. No, it's still fun. maybe it was a little long for that game, but um, yeah, no, that's a great example. Great example. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. That's awesome. So, bottom line, I'm an awesome teacher, and I don't have to work on anything. <laughs> I, I, in conclusion, yeah, you are great. Oh, uh, sorry. There was one last thing. Um, I want to touch touch on theme very, very quickly. Um, I know. I think it was episode zero when we were talking about Raxon and you, Marty. You said uh, the theme definitely is a factor in what draws you to a game and brings you in. So, does the theming, like, if I let's take Raxon for an example, you guys all know the history of it. You know the big. It's theme based. It's all. That's all. It, the whole marketing machine behind it is theme based. When you're playing that game, and I'm using terminology that reference. Like, you know, every game has their own terminology. And it's thematic to that game. If I'm using that terminology to explain, does that help or hinder your understanding? Marty. Hmm. It's hard. I guess it's game... It's contextual. Like, it's really hard to say. Most of the time, it probably helps. It helps to be immersed in it. Yeah, okay. But as long as you know what's being said, if you're immersed in that world and you're kind of getting into that vibe, it makes sense. It helps. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, You know, I can't really think of any specific examples where theme has really tripped me up. Um, Okay, I'll I'll give you an example. Sure. How about Android Netrunner? Oh, yes. That's a very, very good example of... An asymmetrical two-player game, for those not familiar, for listener, if you're not familiar with Android, it's a living card game put up by Fantasy Flight Games. Great game. Maybe not the current state, but that's a whole other tangent we could talk about later. But both uh, both sides, asymmetrical play, so they have, they're all different descriptors describing the same thing. Each person's deck is called something different. Their hand is a different name, and their discard pile is a different name. Mm. Yeah, it was confusing for me, Leland, and I think that goes back to you and me having had a previous decade of Magic the Gathering being our only 
collectible card game that right. we play. So when suddenly my deck is no longer a deck. It's a stack it's or a, it's an R&D. It's a stack or an R&D and my graveyard isn't what it was. Yeah. You know, subconsciously, those names, those themes, because Magic the Gathering, it's still a theme to have a graveyard be your discard pile. Yeah. Uh, those just got really imprinted and it was really hard to get over that with, yeah. with Netrunner. Yeah, so that's that's a big like stumbling block on learning that game for some people. Um, but I, I think, though, like, they're very thematic. When you look at the game, the game one player plays the runner, who is just a hacker, trying to get into the corporation's um, files and f- find their nefarious agendas. When you're running on their research and development, you're, you're finding their tools. You're finding their goodies. That makes sense, right? Well, don't, don't combine, like my thoughts on how difficult a theme was to learn, to learn not like a theme. Matching. I love Netrunner's No, 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 I'm not, yeah, no, totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. No. Oh, no, um, I, I love thematics. I just find the mechanics of thematics yeah. a little hard to learn sometimes. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, okay, I like it. Okay, uh, well, that uh, that wraps up this segment. All that's right. kind of all I had to, had to think of. Again, I'm, I'm great at teaching, and I don't need to change a damn thing. <laughs> I'm glad we came to that conclusion. I'm very glad it took you 20 minutes to stroke your ego. I haven't pat myself on the back for the last 40 minutes right here, okay? His back is red from patting. <laughs> uh, so to uh, wrap up this episode, we're going to discuss Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, not so much a review of the movie, but we could review it a little bit. But Well, uh, not so much as a review as in I don't think we're going to give a rating. No. Right? Um, like with Dunker, we didn't give ratings. We just gave our general impressions. No, but maybe right. I, well, maybe I will give it a rating. Okay, but yeah. well, then we gotta make a whole yeah. rating system that All we right. haven't talked about. Now you're throwing um, you're throwing both of us. I'll for give a it seven party. apples out of twenty bananas. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a good one actually. I like <laughs> I like apples <laughs> and bananas. Um, you know, I'm gonna throw it to uh, Moby to get us started on this uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm an interesting um, guy when it comes to superhero movies, with the exception of Watchmen, which I only read after seeing the film. I'm not a comic reader at all. These other two guys in the past, listener, have been comic book readers. So my standards are somewhat lower, especially on continuity. Um, What I really liked about Spider-Man Homecoming is that it it continued this theme of every... Marvel property, and I know Marvel just has a partnership for Spider-Man, but each Marvel uh, film now kind of fits into its own genre of movie. You've got Captain America being this political war-type thrillers, and you get with Spider-Man this kind of 80s Howard Hughes teen drama breakfast club slash Ferris Bueller's Day Off thing going on, and I liked how they went for that vibe. I'm interested if they can carry that vibe forward. At some point, Peter Parker is going to have to graduate or move on to bigger and better things. Um, But it worked for this film. I think my favorite part of this film, and we've talked about this outside of the podcast, I love Michael Keaton. I love that they brought... They brought superhero royalty into the Marvel (laughs) Cinematic Universe. And that's how I see Michael Keaton. You know, superhero movies were pretty goofy before and even after him and he brought some real credibility in 1989 Batman and I you know I thought it was inspired to bring him into the modern superhero movies as a villain and and I think he was fantastic he he was amazing he made that movie what it is absolutely he made that movie you know we we talk about it and so I know I'm repeating things that the the other guys know but that scene 
when Michael Keaton is in the car on the way to prom with Peter and his date, who's his daughter, which was hilarious in itself. <laughs> and as Leland told me, as soon as we got out of that theater, you see it in his eyes. You see him perk up and raise eyebrows, and he's doing all his acting without speaking. And you see him put together the puzzle in his brain. that Peter is Spider-Man. You see it play on his face. And then just that, it's almost out of camera, but he has a pistol in his right hand, and he leans over <laughs> to the passenger seat to talk to Peter and give him the... And menaces him. And menaces him with the world's... Most hardcore dad talk, I think, in cinematic history. <laughs> it was definitely probably the best scene. Oh, that was so good. It was it was great. Michael Keaton's great in it. I think when you think of any Spider-Man film, the maybe superhero film in general, the best ones have the best villains. Oh, yeah, yes, man. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That, I think that that's the... Sorry to interrupt. You could probably argue the best... Spider-Man film was Spider-Man 2. Yes, it was. I will get to that. Yes, and, absolutely. And Dr. Octopus oh. is amazing. Yes, he's amazing. You know, yeah. So, yeah. this movie as well, it had a very good villain. It made up for some of the shortcomings, for sure. What do you yeah. think, Leland? Well, um, I enjoyed it. I would say that it is an uh, above-average movie. <laughs> Which... These guys may, uh, you know, fill you in on that. Le- Leland's laughing because if he gives a movie a B, you can expect to win 13 Oscars. Well, and, and, and particularly um, the, the slew of, of superhero films I'm a little hypercritical of, I suppose. Um, I don't know, really know why. I don't know. These, I just, these characters are close to me. I feel that they're close to me. I don't know. I just When I see something portrayed... In an in ineffective or inaccurate way, I it, it gets me. It, it, it gets my goat. But uh, no, I, I liked Homecoming. Um, definitely. Uh, again, my, like I said, Michael Keaton made this movie. Um, he's so good, and they were so smart to to the role that they used him. They because they know there's no way they can put Green Goblin back in like that. that certainly, that's shouldn't. not a good move. So they they made. Vulture filled the Green Goblin role. So smart. Did not see that coming. So smart. And he's perfectly... Keaton is perfectly cast to fill that role. It's amazing. The only thing... The only downside uh, of that is that um, the interactions the, the between Spidey and Vulture, the fights, I don't see... You can't have an actual fight. I mean, that was the, my... One of the biggest criticisms of this movie for me is that there was no fight scene. It was it was Peter webbing up dudes and then being towed by Vulture and his and his cool ass wings. Right. Even the final the culmination when he's on the airplane that was not a fight. No. That was him hanging on for dear life trying to survive. Like it wasn't him fighting. It wasn't him really being acrobatic. It wasn't him throwing punches. It wasn't like even in the Amazing Spider-Man with Garfield, Andrew Garfield. Uh, when he fought the lizard in the school, that was a great fight scene mm-hmm. because he is he's out he's flipping all over. A lizard is this huge hulking mass, and you you see Spidey's agility and he's he's webbing him up as he's he's basically he's literally crawling around lizard and like it was a great it was, that's a good fight and I want I want to see that and and even further back to Spider Man two the best Spider Man movie from these last set these last three reboots for sure Sam Raimi Spider Man two amazing. Every fight with Doc Ock was crazy. Doc Ock, he's got four arms swinging back, and 
Spidey's dodging them and like, oh man, it's so good. Those fight scenes were so good. And that's what Homecoming lacked for I sure. I have to agree with you on that. Homecoming felt, and maybe it was um, intended that Peter Parker did not feel like a hero yet. He felt like a teenager playing hero. And he felt like he was trying to do it. Maybe by the end he was doing heroic things. Yeah. But he wasn't a combat ready that's a, hero. That's a know? great he, point. He was still a 15 year old kid yeah that's a great point and I think that is the the tone that they were trying to go for for sure because because this this is not a superhero movie it's like no. you said this is this is a teen this is a teen drama movie like no no nobody in this movie is heroic nothing Spidey did felt particularly heroic yes he is saving people's lives but the first okay so when I first saw the the very first trailer for this when he has the fairy that's been cut in cut in two by Vulture's crazy beam weapon and he's holding it and he's webbing it up I expected to get the rush of feeling that I got from Spider-Man 2 when Peter uh, Spidey and that um, McGuire is stopping that runaway subway and he's on the front of it and he's got the webs going he's holding these webs and his suit's ripping because his muscles are so flexed and he finally stops it it halfway comes off the end of this it's stopping it from crashing into the water killing everybody and he falls forward, and the citizens fucking catch him, and they pull him in, and they put him above him, and I'm like, I'm like getting shakes, even th- like I love that scene, and that's what I wanted from that fairy scene, and I did not get, I did not even get any close because it was cool. He zipped around, he webbed up, um, but he. The hold, the very hold, that was like, it was a second hold. Like, it was not the he strenuous. Failed. He failed. He, failed. he straight yeah. up failed right I mean, away. Iron yeah. Man has to save his butt. Yes. And again, um, I think that's the theme of it. That is, that is what they were going for, yes. You know? But that's not what I wanted. And I and because I had those expectations, I was disappointed So, so maybe in the second film, you're going to get that. Maybe. And I hope so. And it's going to feel so because good. Because you know what? It took Raimi, Spider-Man 2, the sequel, to get those feelings. Because yeah. I did not get those feelings from the first Spider-Man. No. Well, it, it, it's such a small scale in regards to how much danger or lack of danger you felt in and that I, Spider-Man. And I, and I like that. Yeah, it was yeah. cool. Again, but, that's, I mean, he's just fighting a couple bank robbers and, yeah. you know, gun runners and things like that. But, you know, you come off Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, with these spaceship riding guys, you know, fighting giant mutants and stuff. And you go to Spider-Man. Don't get me wrong. It was fun to watch. But I, there was a lack of danger. I always knew Iron Man was going to save Spidey. I was pretty sure Vulture wasn't going to die. Yeah. And it, it just felt small scale, and that's okay, but I don't know. Just the stakes were so low. So Avengers 3 is going to wrap up Marvel's Phase 3 uh, when they find, when they have Avengers 3 Part 2. Yeah. The Phase 4 is going to start actually with Spider-Man Homecoming 2. Hmm. And they said they wanted to do that because they wanted to humanize the Marvel world and universe again after this big galactic... Hmm. Um, they want to blow it up and bring it right back. Kind of similar to like comics, how they yeah. have these cataclysmic events. Yeah, they reset, they, they reboot, reboot it, you know. Whatever word you want. Spider Man is the perfect way to do that, and I agree. I think yeah. that's. But is that setting us up for a Spider Man Homecoming two with the same issues, the same themes, the same tone, the same, yeah, the same overall? But whatever maybe, they wanted to say overall, the same thing. Yeah, that's, that's maybe really he's going to have a very human you know limited sort of uh, battle again against a villain that's not you know world shattering but yeah. maybe he will be heroic in this well that's fine none of his none of his his rogue Spidey's rogues are not world shattering no, they're the, the, the final New York power. exactly yeah. so that that is what he's supposed to be 
And I get that, and that's fine. And you know what? If okay, so that then that ties in with another reason it was disappointing for me is because this the only way to get this movie the way it is portrayed is to have the money machine of Marvel before it. This this is a Marvel movie. This yes. is a direct result of the Marvel movies before it. There's no doubt about that. So you could not get a Spider-Man with these themes and tones, I don't think, without that that beforehand knowledge. Like no, it's very difficult to make a superhero film that's going to make enough money yeah. unless it's this big thing, this event. Um, unless you have this stuff leading into it. And, and yeah. you do. You have a big Marvel machine leading into this film. And people are going to see it because Iron Man's in it. Yeah. And, and, and then that, again, to finish that point I was trying to make is that is disappointing in his rogues gallery. Their portrayal, you are directly comparing them to right. the likes of Ultron, even though Ultron kind of sucked, as far as he could destroy the world because he's that, potentially has the power to do that yeah so th- I think that is also where I was disappointed is even the portrayal of Vulture was awesome and great like Keaton's great I mean we keep saying it Keaton's great <laughs> but he's still Vulture he's still the Vulture exactly he's still still your middle class guy but I think I, I really liked like the character of Vulture because he's he's he operates in the gray he's not completely evil he's no. he's right he's he is doing he's, all he's this nefarious stuff for, to support his family and, and that's as a direct result of the impact of the Avengers and the initiatives that they put in to try to fix their, you know, quote-unquote mistakes that they do or the blunders and the d- destruction they cause, he was forced into it. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's still illegal activities, and he does murder fuck a dude. <laughs> I mean, I guess by accident, but I wasn't convinced that was by accident. But you still then portray him as as the as the family man, the great guy. He's doing what he needs to do. And well, I mean, here's here's the thing. So so often in these movies, I mean, what is it? You know, it's some demigod or or android or something that's chasing down some gem or thing like that. I mean, that's cool from a fantasy perspective, but you can't identify with that. But yeah. we're middle class guys. You can identify with the guy who's just trying to clean up. Do a job, keep his boys employed, keep them coming to work on time, and he gets his contract pulled out from under of him. And, and you know what? It gives you a relation to a villain that, you know, we really haven't seen in these films so far. Kind of, it, it's a little bit outside of what we normally talk about, but you think about something like Dragon Ball Z and mm-hmm. an anime that's the enemies just keep getting bigger and more muscular and more powerful <laughs> and it, nothing really changes. Yeah. It's just everyone just keeps getting stronger, stronger, stronger and the human element disappears a little bit. Yes, exactly. And that doesn't work on a big movie after a while because you can't you can't risk it. You can't spend $250 million on a movie and have it flop. Yeah, and right. they're going to risk it if they don't pull it back and I think they're smart by pulling it back after the Avengers uh, 3 and 4. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a whole other topic, and it's one I think we should do on a just a speculative uh, segment on where we think Marvel might go with Avengers. Uh, like Phase 4? Yeah, Phase 4, and where they're going to go with the yeah, Infinity like, War as well. Like, who may die, oh, okay. who may make it. Yeah. What's this landscape going to look like once those two films are, are complete? And is it going to be as impactful as the first three phases? Like. Well, I think, sir, I, I mean, we don't want to dive too deep into it, but I think from a marketing perspective that it's a home run. I mean, you are going to get 
you know, my parents, they only watch Guardians of the Galaxy. They only go to theaters for that. But they're going to go to Infinity War because they'll know Guardians of the Galaxies are in it. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have every single fan of any of these characters going, and it's going to be an event. You know, it's like in the 1960s, Hollywood used to do this all the time. Lawrence of Arabia, Spartacus, you know, Ben-Hur, huge event movies. And this is the modern-day evolution of that. It's yeah. also going to show your parents all these other characters that yeah, they, they yeah, might, might, might like. Right, right. Exactly. Just to kill them anymore. off and have no more movies with them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, story for the other day. I, yeah, I think uh, we could, I could spend a whole time talking about the Infinity movies for yeah, sure. I would yeah, love to dive world, into world, the, world, the, the comic the story and stuff. That's cool. Um, another one, another thing we want to talk about with Spider-Man was uh, Holland. Um, was he a good Peter Parker? I think he was. I think he... Was he the best Peter Parker? I think he was. Well, okay. Gar- I think Garfield was a good Peter Parker. Um, particularly the first half of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Gasp! I know I said it. A good thing about that movie. Um, but, like, the first half, I, w- I rewatched it recently. I don't, know, I don't know why. I just, I thought, you know, I gotta do it again. I gotta, I gotta try. And um, the first half, he, he's, 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 I think it's a great... Peter Parker. Okay. I don't. I just like him. I don't. He's. I don't. Know, I don't know. He was likable in the films. Yeah. yeah. He's not the. He's not the problem. He's not, though, the problem no. he's not no. what. He's not the problem in those movies. No. Um, no. I liked. I liked Holland. I definitely think the weakest of the three is for sure Tobey Maguire. Mm, um, yeah. But at the time, I think he did a fantastic job in the first two Spider-Mans. <laughs> <laughs> that's again probably not his fault in Spider-Man. Totally. Three. That's, totally, that's totally. another can. And you know what I. Uh, I actually enjoy Spider-Man 3. I think it's a much better movie than The Amazing Spider-Man 2. That's I, for sure. I agree. I agree. And again, I don't. I know. I know we're not talking about Spider-Man, no. the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans, but in Spider-Man 3, the end when when Harry comes back to help him yeah. and saves him again. I got that rush of oh, this is awesome. Like, that I was know. cool. I just cool. I have. I did not get that rush at all during Homecoming, and I was disappointed in that. I was expecting. I was expecting my face to. To flush up and tears start to almost come out of my eyes, but it didn't happen. Let's talk about the best part of Homecoming, which was the uh, cameos by Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. I, we were sitting in the theater and uh, we, we didn't know what the post credit scene would be. Post post. The post post. And I I made a joke to Leland that if it had another Captain America PSA, yeah. it would be the best That's film of all time. And, uh, and it did. I guess it is it the best did. film of all time, apparently. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. That was so well done. my favorite part. Yeah. So a lot of the comedy really landed in the film. So yeah. Took, Although you it, said... It took um, me about 10 minutes yeah, to, to really get into it. I think at first yeah. it just felt awkward to me. And yeah. then I started kind of getting into that mood, I guess. And then I liked it. You know, it was, it was very interesting, kind of the minor roles they did in that movie. You know, you had Captain America um, doing these PSAs, and they were great. They were hilarious. But if you don't know, the trivia behind that is they had very little time with Chris Evans, and they basically had him read this stuff off a teleprompter. And so when he says in the post-post credits, how many more more of these things are there? You know, that's actually Chris Evans that's going funny. like, what's, what's up here? Um, they were great. They were fantastic. And I'm glad that for the Blu-ray release, we get a bunch of That's other cool. ones that were That's left cool. on the cutting room floor. Yeah. I think I'm posing this right now. I'd like to watch it with you two guys yeah, live. I'd love to. Not later. And, and just laugh our butts off. Fun. Um, but I do want to throw uh, a little bone out here. Okay, that's going to sound creepy for where I'm going with this. 
I want to throw a little bit of appreciation out there for Zendaya for her role. Um, originally, you know, she was speculated to be a, um, a Mary Jane, a new Mary Jane. She's not. If you saw the little reference at the end where she said, my friends call me MJ, I looked that up. That doesn't mean she's Mary yeah, Jane. No, that was throw. just a little Her name is joke. Michelle. Her name is Michelle. Yeah. I thought it was fun to have a young millennial as a just a figure in the movie to poke fun good. at millennials, light protesting. Yeah, no, I, I like this protesting. You know, this this is very much a 2017 movie. Yes, holy Absolutely. crap! Even the depiction of Flash uh, Thompson. Um, yeah, not your jock, not your over 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 steroided jock pushing Peter around. No, it's not. It's not physical bullying. It's uh, mental and emotional bullying, I think. that. Which is funny because I think it we missed that generation by about a year, I think. Yes, yeah, that's... <laughs> um, when we think of bullies, we think of yeah. getting beat up, and now it, it's not quite the same. And yeah, no, it's totally different. You now it's your Trump supporter. And see, that... <laughs> and then that was another thing that also didn't land for me. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see Thompson as being any any form of superior to Parker because I mean Parker in every aspect outshines him they're both on the the science decathlon team or whatever it's called I mean Parker's a genius he's a he's a boy he's practically a boy genius so he outshines Flash there he routinely removes himself from the team is welcomed back on by the teacher and overtakes Flash's position he gets benched I um I it didn't land for me it was just like Flash he wasn't the bully. He was just like overcompensating for his. I guess that is a bully. He's overcompensating for his own insecurities. And I guess that is boils down to why bullies become bullies. I suppose Spider-Man always beats the bullies. So if you think about like the other films, the, the comics, even when he becomes stronger, he beats them physically. But yeah. in this film, he just beat them mentally. That's a good. That's a great point. I did not pick on that. That's a great point. Yeah, we're yeah. Actually, that's a good point. But I agree where Leland's going with this. I would add that to me, a bully has to have a sense of intimidation. And, okay, maybe there's a way that you can make it happen mentally or whatnot. But I just fe- I just feel Flash just did not have that. Hmm. Period. Like, physical no, there was or, no or mental. No. He was not You're intimidating. Right. He was just a rival. You know what crossed my mind? He's barely a rival, you, honestly. You know what crossed my mind when I was watching the film and he got introduced as the bully? The early Pokemon red and blue. You know, who <laughs> picks Charmander? Who picks Bulbasaur? That kind of rival he's where... He's kind of laughable. You school him like five times throughout the game or the movie. You're never really scared of the guy. He's got weird hair. and In this case, uh, his dad's flashy car or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it came off to me as that kind of rival versus a bully. Yeah, he just became comedic relief. No, but honestly, though, I I mean, I agree with your sentiments there, but he wasn't even a rival. At no point was he rival. Even for Liz Allen's affection... Parker hands down one, and he didn't. And he was just being Peter. Like, in, he, in no way was he a rival. And they okay. and they portrayed like they portrayed Flash chasing Liz, right? Kind of. I think so. Right, a little bit. And again, I don't think he was. He wasn't I, even I a think rival. That's a kind of a nice statement on bullying. Like the bully's not winning at all. Yeah, he's, that's, he's that's a loser. Good. Yeah, yeah. A good point. That's good. good. Point. And honestly, I mean, Thompson's, I guess, a minor role. I don't know. I just, I don't. I mean, I, again, I don't. I don't give a shit about. His casting that he's Indian, have to be an or, I don't care, or that Liz Allen was was uh, African American, or, or I'm not sure what the actress's name, but I don't give a shit about that. I don't care that Zendaya is quote unquote MJ. Who cares? I don't give a shit about that. I just want the characters to be cool. And then my problem with Zendaya's character uh, as Michelle MJ 
that I don't see the connection of her and Peter being an item. That was my biggest thing. I don't. I, was I don't bring see that up. Yeah, I, I just don't see that, that. And that was my criticism of her being portrayed in that way. So I don't know. There is intuitively there is zero chemistry between those. Oh two yeah, on and any level. And she, I mean, because she has zero chemist chemistry with any character in that because of the way that her character is written. Exactly. That's, that's the point. She has. She has. She's an outsider. She is. She, she's the she's odd a loner. one. She's, she's alone. Exactly. She doesn't so, have friends. She so doesn't that's even I don't understand. So, so I, unless they write her character as having like some crazy epiphany, I I don't I don't see it. It's like she just, she's gonna have to do a complete one eighty. But does she have to be an item with Peter? No, that's the thing. She doesn't. Again, so I was uh, depending on how they're gonna portray that relationship. Who knows? Like, is he gonna have like a Sly Cooper style like uh, group of helpers? Like, he's got his like tech <laughs> helper. And, and that would be awesome. Yeah, maybe they're going that way. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I've heard some criticisms about uh, Aunt May's portrayal, like her youth. Oh, don't get me started on that. I'm not. I'm not offended with her youth. I think that this is the conspiracy theorist to me talking, and I've told you guys this before. I completely agree. With that. I think that they purposefully desexified her compared to her role in Civil War yeah, because I think did. they 100 did. Marvel is so worried about not being seen as progressive in every possible way that to portray Aunt May as hot and as a sexually desirable woman for the audience and for Iron Man, they really toned that down. And I think that was a mistake. I think. You know, the meta fact that uh, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Marissa Tomei were an item in the past. Yeah, that was like a, a, nice, a cool nod. That was fantastic. Yeah. And it, out of the way, you know, these awkward round glasses and hiked up yeah, jean it was, shorts. It was, it was really weird. Like, and, and what I would say about that, okay, listener, think about it. Think about it from a, a clear slate. In a way that's very defaming to Marissa Tomei. You have a naturally beautiful woman oh, and you cover her she's up. She's beautiful. You cover her up for a progressive agenda in this case. And I think we can respect that Marvel Well, I mean, wants I don't even... Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. We can we can respect that Marvel wants to get you know more minority roles and stuff. And they've done a really good job in casting. But the way it came off is that they were hiding or ashamed of Marissa Tomei and how they portrayed her. It was just scene. weird because Iron Man still made comments about her. He did, yes, yeah. exactly. I was, yeah, but she was a different character than she was four months she, before. She honestly was. Um, to that point about Iron Man, I thought Downey Jr.'s uh, performance was very, very lacking in this movie. Extremely hammed up. Way over the top, like he shot all of his lines in three hours. It did I, seem like he phoned. He it. was so handy. I did not much. enjoy it. And that whole, the whole little thing at the end after Peter turns down being a thing of the Avengers. I don't know what that was or what they were trying to do. And also, I saw a thing. It was, I think it was, I forget what video it was, but like when Happy made a uh, point of saying, "I've been holding this ring since 2008." The first Iron Man, where he was. Uh, I guess where that ring was? I don't know. I don't recall. I, I think that's what it was. Oh, okay. Um, it was set in 2010. Oh. <laughs> Even though it came out in 2008. So I don't know what... I don't know if that was like a nod to something that I'm unaware of, but it was weird. I didn't like it. 
you know what? I'll make this point. One of the reasons why Robert Downey Jr. is so good as Iron Man and Tony Stark is that there are a lot of areas where their personalities are honestly similar outside well, of the film. And that's why Chris Evans is a great cap as well. Exactly. Chris Evans is, if you read up on him, he's honestly a salt of the earth, will pull over, fix your car, pull shirt off his back and give it to you, nice guy. But Robert Downey Jr. has an ego. And we know in the past, like trying to shoehorn in Gwyneth Paltrow into the first Avengers movie, he tries to make it about him. And Spider-Man was definitively a film not about him where he's a supporting role. And that's why I think he nailed it in. Mm. Is because he's not the big shot, so he'll collect his 50 mil Mm. and go on his way. I can see it. Uh, One last thing I want to talk about uh, is the Venom spinoff. Kind of. It's not really a spinoff. Apparently, like Spider-Man exists in that universe, but he's not going to be centric to the plot of any Venom movie. Again, played by Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy loves this podcast. He's, we're still waiting to hear his email back. But <laughs> he, a future guest, hopefully. But I don't, we'll I don't understand. I don't understand it. Well, apparently, they're unrelated to the Marvel films. Yes. Okay. So, so they exist in a universe that exists in a pocket of another universe. It's like the stupidest fucking thing yeah, ever. Yeah, that's what Kevin Feige has said, though, is that they somehow exist in the same universe, even though they're not. And it seems like the dumbest it, way to shoehorn in. They're not going to draw the from the universe at all, but they're going to exist. So I guess we won't see Venom in any of these current crop of Spider-Man films. No. Which is fine. Yeah, we've seen enough. That's fine. I think a Venom solo movie could be cool. Venom is a, a, a very cool anti-hero. Um, he's and not, he's not always film. murder. It's a horror film? It's going to be like a horror film. So he's going to be the baddie? I don't know. Oh, that's fucking terrible. Think, that's stupid. I think he's going to be in it with Carnage. I, I did hear Oh, yeah, I heard the Carnage thing. Oh, I did hear okay. that they're going horror. Okay, I don't understand that. Though. Okay, so then it's going to be a blend of genres. It's not Obviously, it's not going to be straight horror. How could they do that? No. I like Carnage on screen. I would love a hard R for this because Carnage is terribly homicidal. Uh, I mean, they I guess have to. Venom, yeah. they have to. How can you portray Carnage, who routinely likes to form his symbiote hands into axes and cut people into pieces, not have that? I, I, I mean, it doesn't have to be the whole time. It can be toned down, but he's there's going to need to be some blood. Uh, you know what? I, I think they're going to go that route. Um, you know, post-Logan, post-Deadpool, I think R is, is on the table. Yeah. And certainly, I think in this case, R may be the draw you need. To get a big enough audience to see this. And maybe that is the reason they are disembodying themselves from the titan that is Marvel. Okay, fair enough. That makes sense. Marvel hasn't released a R film. They they couldn't do it. To to rival the success, I don't think that they could do it. Even the Netflix series are 14A, I would say. What character would they have? What character would they have that they could make R? Punisher. Okay, but they they can't do that now because of this weird and okay then there's this weird ambiguous and big ambiguous connection between the Netflix series and the MCU the the movie the cinematic universe that they routinely reference the events of Avengers but they're not the, not technically the same world right I've um, heard that I don't understand I don't it doesn't make any sense to me because uh, you know what fits perfectly into that street level fighter that they are portraying now with the defenders coming out soon is spider-man is exactly how they portrayed spider-man in homecoming that's along the same lines very different tones from daredevil and jessica jones and even luke cage was was darkish so i don't know it it doesn't make any sense yeah and i and i like tom hardy's casting that's cool but what the hell are they going to do with them 
they they're losing so much of the character of Venom by not not having him intrinsically connected to Spider-Man. It doesn't make any fucking sense. To me, sense. it defeats the purpose. The, the, yes, it Reminds does. It defeats the purpose. Reminds me of having a Catwoman film without Batman. Yeah, right? Totally. That's why... I, that, I really yeah. hope it's better than Catwoman. Whoa, Jesus. It better. But they, they lose so much of the character. So without doing that, all they're doing is taking a name and slapping it on whatever type of movie they want to make. That does not make a good movie or a good superhero movie. That's the, the portrayal is terrible. It doesn't make any sense. You lose so much of Venom's hatred for Spidey, which is driven from the symbiote itself, from Parker rejecting the symbiote and all the the, the negative feelings and emotions it can embody on its host. It's just... Ah. I can imagine they want to kind of stay away from that after Spider-Man 3. Yeah, that's why I'm surprised they're even making a Venom movie. I, yeah, where did this come it, it's from? It's been in development hell for years. Oh, okay. We'll see. It's definitely a topic we'll come back to if they get serious about it. And this, yeah. The, sure. the gear still I want to see some here. footage. Yeah. I want to see some so, footage. Yeah, if sure. they're smart, they will immediately portray Venom on screen. Yeah. In the first trailer. Immediately. Yeah. Maybe even Carnage, depending on yeah. what role he has in the movie. I don't know. Yeah, show me a cool trailer with Tom Hardy being Venom and you, y'all you be there. Ah, uh, yes. I, I'm obviously going to see it, of course. I mean, I saw Dunkirk that has Tom Hardy in it. How are you going to rant about it if you don't see it? <laughs> and you know what? The great thing about a symbiote suit is it can expand to Tom Hardy's ever-expanding body. Yeah. You don't got to make a special plain cockpit for him. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it'll be cool. I mean, he's he's a draw nowadays. He's a legitimate draw. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, we'll see where it okay. goes. Okay. Right. Uh, that's kind of that's all the thoughts I was having so, uh, so revolving Homecoming. If you guys had to rate this film, what would you say? <sighs> okay, what is a rating scale? A 1 to 10? Let's just say a 1 a percentage? To one to like ten. a rotten percentage? For, rotten? T- for today, we'll go 1 to 10. We'll change okay. how we review movies every time. We might go gold, silver, plons. We might go <laughs> 2 stars, 5 stars. Okay, okay. But this time, out of 10. All right, I'll start. I think this is a 6.5 out of 10. Again, like I said, it is above average. Now, that may see it sound low, but like that's still... Like an 8 and above is like a great movie, right? It's okay. You're allowed your opinion. Oh, so I think it's... <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm like immediately defending myself against our stupid listener. Who now I've switched to loving and now I've you hated... You used to call listener smart. Well, I, yeah. Call now my opinion, my opinion is jaded. I am, I am alienating and... You've completely I, alienated listener. Leland, I'm sorry, listener. I'm Leland Steele, sponsored by Rexon Pharmaceuticals High Blood Pressure Pills. <laughs> he gets an unlimited supply. Rexon knows what's right. All right, Moby, what do you think? You know what? I am going to give it... Don't kill me, Leland. I'm going to give it a, a 7.5, and I would go about a 6.5. I'm giving it a point for Michael Keaton's performance, really elevating okay. it to a memorable okay. film of an above That's valid. Film. That's why I got a 6.5 for me. Very Not a 6. Ordinarily, it would have been a 2. That's entirely... No, no, no. I told you. Like I said, it was. it's an above average. That is an above average rating. Sounds good. Marty? Uh, I'm going to go with 8. Um, you know, what? A, a solid B. I really, Whoa. I really like it. I just said 8 is great. 8 and above is great. To you? You wow. think that movie's great? To you? No. That, that's 80%. I think it's great. It's a good... Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think it's great. Yeah. Like Civil War. It's, or not Civil War. Winter Soldier is great. Winter Soldier is a Winter Soldier is like a nine point five. Yes. Winter Soldier is very near perfect for me. I love Winter Soldier. Yeah, I, I But that's because I have the biggest heart on for Chris Evans. Seven point five to eight. Okay. No, no, I'm gonna stick with eight. Oh fuck you. Eight. 
Anyways, that's this is why we don't put a number on things. Go see this film. Yeah, fine. Go see it. Go see it. Listener, argue with us. All right. Okay. This is Moby signing off. Tally Ho. Uh, this is Marty. This has been episode number two. And uh, Leland? Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm Leland. Thanks for listening, listener. Uh, I'm sorry I made funny. Uh, again, if you want to check out some of my board game reviews, you can go to lelandsteelfiction.wordpress.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at T underscore HUD underscore rapid. Thanks for listening, guys.